Hello and welcome to a special edition podcast from WIHI, Personal Mastery for Transformational Leadership, featuring Neil Baker. I'm Madge Kaplan, host and producer of WIHI and Director of Communications at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. WIHI is IHI's bi-weekly audio talk show. WIHI recorded Neil Baker's remarks live on December 8, 2015 in Orlando, Florida at IHI's 27th Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. Materials shared at this session, including the presentation slides, can be found on IHI's website. Look on the homepage of IHI.org for a link to this WIHI program. Dr. Baker orchestrated four one-minute table exercises during the forum session that you, too, might engage in with co-workers using the materials for guidance. Neil Baker heads up Neil Baker Consulting and Coaching. He developed his approaches over 30 years as a medical leader, speaker, consultant, executive coach, and as faculty and improvement advisor for 10 years with IHI. Dr. Baker works with healthcare organizations to enhance leadership and team impact. His signature contribution to this field is his adept way of using any work situation, even the most complex and difficult, as an opportunity to achieve immediate impact on the quality of work relationships. Here's Neil Baker. So here's the major premise for today is that the major, the primary challenge we have as transformational leaders is not about learning new skills. I have 100% absolute certainty that every single person in in this room and on the satellite broadcast has sufficient skills to have substantial impact on the environment for transformation in your organizations right now. I think the primary challenge we have in in transformational leadership is using the skills we already have in the face of the complexity, volatility, uncertainty, ambiguity, and pressures that are inherent in all of our work environments and will not go away. These stress factors pull us all at times out of our best skills, our best leadership skills, but also even at times into behaviors that are counterproductive for our own values and goals. And we may not even be aware of it at the time. This is illogical, but it is not abnormal. It is hardwired into our humanness. And it happens to you. It happens to me at times. It happens to the most outstanding transformational leader you can think of. Great credentials, experience, and skills don't protect us from this. Now, this may seem like kind of a downer to look at the dark side of human nature. I mean, you're only one and a half hours into a conference where you're supposed to get hope and inspiration. But the starting point for transformation is looking at things as they are. And there is great promise in accepting and embracing this powerful, innate human tendency to counterproductive behavior under stress. Stress is so prevalent in our organizations that it's very likely at any given time what looks like personality issues or lack of skills or lack of caring or severe dysfunction is actually a temporary degradation of skills due to complexity and stress, situational factors. And in any organization at any time, there are likely to be a large amount of unused leadership skills 
and ourselves and others to tap into. And today, I'm going to be talking to you about a framework to bring out our best, the best leadership skills that we have in ourselves and others, even in the most difficult times. And my hope is that you will leave this session and use this framework in your next conversation, certainly no later than by next Tuesday. This is not easy. It is hard work. And it takes courage and determination. But there are times when there is unexpectedly large and rapid transformations. And uh, things get better when we least imagined it would. I think it's because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there, and also because how badly we feel about a situation does not correlate very well with the likelihood of change. Now let's go back to the 20,000-foot level and locate ourselves in quality improvement. This is one of my Bibles of improvement, the Improvement Guide, and we're going to arbitrarily divide quality improvement into two parts today. On the one side is the science and technology of improvement. We're going to put in there all the tools and concepts of it, a lean model for improvement, guidelines, protocols, workflow and efficiency, information technology measures, science and technology of improvement. The focus today is on the relational side of quality improvement. And that's going to include things like communication, collaboration, teamwork, quality of relationships. It's going to include motivation, dealing with resistance, dealing with conflict. It's going to deal with the way leadership is expressed, meeting structures and processes, and decision-making processes. And by way of introduction to myself, my career has bridged both of these over the years. On the science and technology of improvement side of things, I got my start in academics at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center and got an academic promotion there based on teaching and clinical research. Later on, I was medical director of quality at Group Health Cooperative in Seattle, where I was responsible for the development, updating, and implementation of more than 30 guidelines for chronic illness and prevention in a $1 billion statewide delivery system. And I've had more than 10 years of experience as faculty and an improvement advisor with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in multiple different communities. Now, on the relational side of things, I got my start in academic psychiatry at one of the last remaining programs at that time that actually focused on talking to people about change as opposed to pharmacology. And for your reassurance and informed consent, that was long ago enough now that I'm officially an ex-psychiatrist or as some of my IHI colleagues call me, a recovering psychiatrist. Today is not about all that psychiatry stuff. Today is about normal humanness. Now, um, the, the, uh, I didn't come to the relational side of things just because of my interest in psychiatry and relations because of that. Remember, I'm an evidence-based kind of guy. And um, the, uh, and incidentally, I also forgot to tell you that uh, I spent 24 years in clinical and quality leadership because I saw that the best patient care came from the best teams, came from the best leadership, and that my consulting practice is now is helping individuals and organizations with leadership development 
and I'm also faculty for the leadership track for the IHI Project ECHO Collaborative on Improving Flow in Primary Care. So back to the reason for the focus in the relational side is that being evidence-based, I spent a long time looking at the literature and the evidence for the connection between the relational side and results. And this is not an easy thing to do. When I last looked at Amazon just a few days ago, for example, there are more than 174,000 books just on leadership. And this is a subsection of my home library on leadership. And, I've, and it's, there's a bewildering variety of concepts, terminologies, lists of competencies. And uh, it's kind of disturbing to the evidence-based part of me, but if you look underneath all that, all of them draw from the same common body of strong evidence, and the emphasis is on the relational side of things. So now I'm going to give you my four-slide review on the evidence. First of all, this is how we think about quality improvement. So there's a run chart, and you've got flow mapping. We think about the tools and measures and ways of improving. And this is how we feel about it. This is from a qualitative study by Paul Bate and colleagues in which they went into organizations nationally known for quality and did 15 days of interviews and did these kind of maps. And for the purposes of the presentation today, we can think of each of these dots and the lines as conversational linkages between groups and individuals. They showed this, this map to uh, people in these organizations, and they said, this is how it feels. That's they, and uh, at any given moment, we know where we're going to head, but we're not sure how we're going to get there. We have to learn the way there. There's not recipes for how to do this. And we're always working to get people on board and keep people on board. And at the heart of learning the way is a different form of leadership. It's not leadership as direction and having the answers. It's leadership as creating an environment for open and honest conversations where you can elicit differences and manage them skillfully to come to shared definitions of problems and shared solutions. So um, when I look at this diagram, it seems like common sense to me. If you look at these as individuals or groups, everybody is in a different experiential and informational environment. I think even in a small office, the person next to you is. You could draw these diagrams. Their diagrams would probably be somewhat different. And uh, so no one person has sufficient information to come up with even halfway adequate definition of the problem, much less a good solution. So what we need is open and honest conversations where we can bring forth differences. And this is not everything, but it's such a powerful part of innovation, change, and transformation. And it's astonishingly simple in concept but profoundly difficult to pull off consistently and well. Now, I think the strongest evidence for this comes from uh, 40 years of research that showed that engagement with intrinsic motivation leads to better results and sustainability than compliance. Intrinsic motivation is where you come to a task out of um, enthusiasm, a sense of importance. It matters to you as opposed to compliance where you're doing it where because you have to. It's been shown compliance actually leads to worse results in complex tasks, which is most of what we do. Now, the evidence shows that you don't get to intrinsic motivation by talking at people. 
You can give your most charismatic speech with your best message, and you're lucky if you get up to no more than 20% of people on board. People develop their motivation by talking about things and repeatedly trying to connect the importance of what's being projected at them to what's personally important to them. So it takes open and honest conversations where people can say what they think. Now, uh, here's some of the engagements, uh, elements of an engagement with intrinsic motivation. Online, there is a brief tool that goes into this a little bit deeper and gives you some pointers for how you can interview people about intrinsic motivation. But pieces are, do they understand what the change is? Uh, how does the change connect to what's important and to them at work? And it's, what's the impact? Uh, is there a choice for them and where they start? Uh, and the design of implementation, how confident are they? What kind of help do they need? And repeated follow-up. So I don't see how you get to these things without open, honest conversations where people can say what they think. And the way I think about resistance now is resistance is not usually about change. It's about that it's a part of the process inherent in this of coming to a personal connection to things through these elements. Now, there are some huge organizational studies that corroborate this. Gallup Incorporated has an ongoing study that now has 25 million employees across many industries, a thousand organizations, and they've identified 12 indicators of employee experience that lead to better profitability, better productivity, better customer satisfaction, and better employee retention. Two of these are someone cares about me as a person, my opinion seems to count. Again, I don't see how you get to these without open, honest conversations where people can say what they think. McKinsey Incorporation has a study at this time had 115,000 people from 200 organizations across industries. And they found that organizations in the top quartile of financial performance had a multiple different uh, uh, factors involved with that. One of the most important one was an open, trusting environment that allows, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't agree, I have an idea. Again, astonishingly simple in concept, that relate, but relational issues are a powerful driver of results, and at the core are these open and honest conversations. Now, there is a paradoxical issue here, is that we want people to be have intrinsic motivation and care and be enthusiastic. But somebody has to make the call about a direction, and some people are going to be unhappy about that, and it may even be hurtful to some people. So how do you create that sort of environment? You have to have vision, goals, and priorities. The importance of this kind of direction is underscored by the studies I mentioned. In Gallup Incorporated, the employee experience was most powerfully correlated with across the board with results was, I know what's expected of me of work. In the McKinsey study, it was knowing the vision and roles and expectations. Now, most of this presentation is going to be about the engagement piece and creating those open and honest conversations. But towards the end, we will touch on how do you deal with this? How do you make a decision that's going to make people unhappy in an environment where you want intrinsic motivation? So we're going to have four times now where we take a one-minute interlude where you're going to talk to the person next to you. 
And the main purpose of this is to have a brief break. But the tenants, the, you tend to remember 50% of what you hear and see and 80% of what you talk about. So my advice during the one minute is talk. Get out thoughts and associations. But I'd also like you to think about your answer to this question. What, when you have a problem with an improvement effort, what percent of the time are the issues predominantly due to the relational side of things as opposed to issues in applying the science and technology of improvement? And again, the relational side of things is going to be communication, collaboration, teamwork, motivation, dealing with resistance, dealing with conflict, meeting structures and processes, the way leadership is expressed, the way decisions are made. And your choices are relational factors are the cause of improvement problems less than 20% of the time, 20 to 50% of the time, 51 to 80%, and greater than 80%. So you're going to have a minute, and my apologies, because I know you're going to want to continue talking, but I want to keep the pace of the presentation going. You'll hear some Tibetan bells. Please raise your hand and move forward and come back quickly. So take one minute right now. Okay, you have about 10 seconds. And here's the bells I told you about. You could uh, raise your hands and turn forward. So I would just want to take a quick poll here. And I, um, there is no right answer here. Every place is different. But how many of you thought that relational problems or relational issues are the cause of problems with improvement efforts less than 20% of the time? How about 20 to 50 percent? 51 to 80 percent? Greater than 80 percent? Now, I did a written survey of 450 people who attended this presentation, and 88 percent said that relational issues are the cause of problems with improvement efforts uh, the majority of the time. Now, when I've shared that with leaders, it's actually fairly validating and encouraging because it seems there's a tendency with relational issues to struggle with them behind the scenes and think something's wrong with you, like you don't have skills or you're not a good leader, whereas actually it's ubiquitous. And the purpose of this survey that you have today is to extend that data, and I think it's going to be equally helpful to leaders. So please consider filling it out, and at the end of the presentation, you can either leave it where you're sitting or there'll be blue shirts at the door to take it. Now, um, let's look a little more literature just to substantiate all this. This is by Lucian Leap and colleagues uh, about patient safety. We believe, however, that the fundamental cause of our slow progress is not lack of know-how or resources, but a dysfunctional culture that resists change. And in this case, culture 
their definition overlaps heavily with relational issues. How about primary care medical home? Culture was observed by most investigators to be an important facilitator or conversely a barrier to change. Again, definition of culture overlapping strongly with relational issues. And this is a systematic review of the literature about the influence of context on quality improvement to realize the potential of quality improvement methods to transform healthcare quality future research must focus on the role of context and QI, context focusing heavily on relational issues. I'm sorry, I disagree with this, that we are going to realize the potential of QI methods if we get into action on relational issues right now and tomorrow. Look, the level of risk of trying these things out in the way I'm going to describe is fairly low, and the potential payoff is large. Now, how do we understand, how are we going to understand this? The premise today is that relational issues are critical to results, and leadership is about influencing the quality of environment for open and honest conversations within those relationships. But we are hardwired as human beings in response to stress to be drawn out of our best skills or even act in ways that are counterproductive to our own values and goals. That's the main premise. And to understand that and to understand how best to deal with that, I think we need a story, and a story that really describes the interaction between feelings and thoughts and behaviors. And I have a bias about a story that comes from my improvement background, which is they should not be anonymous. Part of the power is you see the people, you hear who they are, you hear their ups and downs. But in trying to find a story, I didn't find many people who wanted to have themselves and their own counterproductive exposed of their counterproductive behavior exposed, I, I think our Western professional culture hasn't reached to embrace that level of humanness. But I did find somebody, and he agreed to have me use his name and his story, as long as I swore you all to confidentiality. So I'm doing that now. Also, all the people in the satellite broadcast. Uh, the name of this person is Dr. Neil Baker. And um, I, had a, I had another dilemma with this story, which is that I didn't want to expose identities of other people. So I chose a story from 13 years ago. I changed the names and titles. And the people, this is an amalgam of a couple of conversations going on at the same time. So you can't identify anyone. But I stayed pretty rigorously true to the interpersonal issues and processes. And then um, the title of the story is The Reptilian Brain Hijacking of Dr. Neil Baker or how I reduced my emotional intelligence to zero in just a few short hours. Uh, the, do we have, uh, is it, are the slides up? Okay, I thought there'd be a slide back here. Uh, so I, this is an estimate, a run chart, that shows the changes in my emotional intelligence during the course of this story. And uh, incidentally, that red line is zero. So I'm proposing the theoretical possibility of a negative level of emotional intelligence. And this is on the basis that a colleague of mine said that at my worst, when I walked into a room, it was as though three people with emotional intelligence walked out. So that's the story. So how does it start? This is the day I became, I uh, got my dream job, medical director of clinical improvement at this large integrated delivery system. Now keep in mind, I was hired into this job because of my ability to get results and also because I was so outstanding at relational issues. I was famous at this place for having turned around one of the most dysfunctional, difficult teams there was. And I was paired with a vice president of quality, I'm going to call Jackie, who was also no, well known as an inspirational, highly relational leader. 
And this is an or- we were very excited because this organization is internationally known for quality. But I entered the job at a time when there's tremendous stress and distress going on. Financial marketplace pressures led to significant budget cuts, and there were layoffs, including doctors and nurses. The delivery system was full of anger, fear, confusion, and quality was pushed in the background. And a couple of days into this, my boss, the chief medical officer, came in and said, Neil, I can't make quality a priority, but you need to keep up our scores and performance. And I, I thought, well, gee, I had one of these jobs. This is a job with high visibility, a lot of responsibility, and absolutely no authority of any kind. I think some of you probably know what that's like, and nobody reported to me. So I went to the medical director of primary care and the vice president of primary care, and they said, no way can we focus on quality. We've practically got a revolution on our hands as it is. And I went to Jackie because the supports for the delivery system, the quality technical consultants were uh, reported to her, and she said, we don't have time to focus on quality. They have to focus on other things and support. So at that point in time were all the triggers loaded to an extreme for my counterproductive behavior. And uh, it was a highly visible situation, uh, lots of emotional tension, uh, a new job, I really wanted to be successful, fears of failure. And I did something, I didn't recognize him, I did something that I would have known at any other time was wrong. I locked myself in my room and office and I came up with brilliant plans all by myself. Um, which I know is wrong. You you develop the best plans in a relational way. But also, I trained my brain for 30 years to come up with the right answers. I mean, I got straight A's in all my science and math courses in high school and college, honors in medical school, basic science. So, bam, my brain is there, and I've got the answers. They're brilliant ideas about the way we design the delivery system. And I got a sense of urgency about it and conviction. And I went into Jackie... And my view of the conversation was I was giving this brilliantly conceived ideas about how we would approach this, and uh, Jackie would express a little bit of concern, and I had already planned ahead how to deal with that, was able to move on to other things, and at the end of the conversation, Jackie agreed to give me quality consultant time. Now, over the next week, what happened, though, is that I would go to quality consultants, and they'd either push back on me or hadn't heard about it. And I went to Jackie, and I said, what's going on? She she said, I never agreed to give you quality consultant time. So this is a characteristic of these counterproductive states where these two people with high emotional intelligence talked together and had virtually no communication about something you would think would be fairly obvious they should agree on. And our relationship deteriorated steadily over three months from there. We, um, and three months for being in a reactive state is actually a relatively short time. I've seen them go on for years, decades, a lifetime, uh, if you're not careful. The, um, and what, uh, if you look at it, instead of being in me, I look objectively about what was going on in the room, you would not have seen this brilliant, cogent, articulate guy engaging somebody. You would have seen somebody who was very intense, pushing their ideas, leaving very little room for questioning or not inviting questioning, pushing away disagreement. You would have seen Jackie withdrawing into silence, Dr. Baker totally oblivious of the emotional tone in the room. So two people, highly emotionally intelligent, basically becoming emotionally illiterates in the course of an hour. 
now, the other thing I question about, how did this go on for so long? Very smart, emotionally intelligent people. Well, the way I put it together is that we're also very nice people. We care about results. We had 100 million items on our to-do list. So we would try to find items where we could work together. But then this other issue would come up, and it would be very difficult. So about three months into this, a colleague who I'd known in my prior job at the organization came in. He said, Neil, I think you're doing it again. And I go, uh, well, what are you talking about here? And he said, the morale in the quality department's going down to tubes, and some of these quality consultants are actually a little bit afraid of you. And that was disturbing. And I, of course, rose to my highest level of values and being, and I said, no, this is Jackie's fault. <laughs> and, um, of course, over a couple of days, I go, oh, my God, I've done it again. And I hadn't done this in a long time. And then I went into Jackie, and I said to her, look, I realize I came up with these ideas on my own. I've been pushing them. I haven't left much room for you to talk. I apologize. What I want to do is set aside decision-making, and I want to get in your shoes. Tell me what's going on, and we'll see where we head, and we'll see if we can come up with some mutual plans. And, of course, she didn't believe me at that moment. I had to work hard repeatedly to open that conversation and to show I was listening to her. Now, over the course of three months, we gradually repaired our conversation. And with the help of our relationship and with the help of some physician champions of guidelines, particularly secondary prevention, we came up with a plan for an improvement in secondary prevention, got it accepted, and we were well on our way in the first year uh, to a projected savings of $5 million and and 300 lives over five years. And I presented this at multiple national conferences, a textbook, perfect case of a multifaceted implementation of an evidence-based guideline. But I never talked about all these other conversations, and this was only one of them going on, that I think were actually critical to ever getting off the ground. Now, let's see if we can use Dr. Baker to understand human behavior. Human behavior is incredibly diverse. So how do you understand what's in front of you at the time? And lots of researchers and thinkers actually roughly divide it into two categories. And I've got these names here, reactivity and creativity, and they're not original to me, and I'm not necessarily tied to these terms. But reactivity is basically behavior that is counterproductive, unproductive, relative to our desired goals and values. And creativity is behavior that is productive related to those. Uh, goals and values. They're consistent with our values. So it's based on the outcomes. And there aren't real absolute diagnostic behaviors, so oftentimes you have to look at behavior over time to see if it's reactive or creative. And um, sometimes behaviors that are reactive in one situation are creative in another. For example, my single-minded drive to get things done That works very poorly when a team is forming, there isn't really consensus on the direction or tasks and roles, but once that gets settled, it is of great benefit to a team. So this is a picture, say, of what was going on between Jackie and I. There are some things, while there are not things that are absolutely diagnostic, that are red flag indicators of reactivity, this counterproductive state anyone can fall into. Uh, This is a team in reactivity. The right-hand side of the table you can think of as Jackie withdrawing into silence. The left-hand table is me storming around, pushing ideas, debating, whereas in creativity there's a sense of joint sharing and exploration of ideas. 
So in reactivity, you get judgment, blame, and personality diagnoses. Incidentally, one of the things that happened during the course of this troublesome time with Jackie is I did something that if you told me I would have done three months before, I said, no way. I vowed I would never do this, but I was doing it. I was so frustrated, I started to complain about Jackie behind her back, and I labeled her passive-aggressive. Judgment, blame, personality diagnoses. If there's anything that's absolutely a red flag indicator, it's that. Whereas in creativity, you're looking at personal accountability. What's working and not working relative to goals? It's dispassionate. Reactivity is pushing ideas or withdrawal into silence. Creativity is joint exploration of all ideas. Uh, Reactivity is unbalanced participation. Creativity is balanced participation. Remember, if we're going to get people to have a commitment that and motivation, we have, they have to talk about it. So balanced participation is very important. And in reactivities, there's difficulty surfacing and managing conflict and dealing with decisions, which is dealt with more effectively in creativity. Now, how do we explain why this occurs in human beings? And I think the best explanations come from neuroscience, that early on in our evolution, brain centers developed that generate automatic responses for survival. So let's take a caveman who walks out of his cave and there's a saber-toothed tiger. He does not have time to pull together an improvement team to flow map the most efficient response. His reptilian brain, and this is those brain centers, gets activated. In this case, I chose a Tyrannosaurus. Uh, uh, some people use an elephant. I mean, that's too tame for me, a stampeding elephant. My, when my brain gets reactive, it feels like a Tyrannosaurus. And he's got, he reacts. So let's say he's walking in the forest and there's some rustling, and there's a startle response. And it's important to know that reactivity isn't either zero or four vo- full volume. You can catch it at lower levels. And that's very important because that's the time we can learn how to deal with it and uh, so that when things do blow up bigger, we can manage it. Now, in social situations in neuroscience, it's shown that social threats and stresses activate these same pathways These pathways bypass higher centers, and they act faster, and they're stronger, and they last longer than the higher center pathways. After all, they evolved millions of years before. And so what we tend to be happen is like Dr. Baker getting gripped in strong emotions and strong convictions that are hurtful to relationships. And we may not be aware that we're doing it, or only have a slight awareness like I had. And the reason for that is explained to me by the fact the conscious brain can process about 40 bits of information a second, the unconscious 11 million bits of information a second. So we are going to have blind spots. We're just not going to act on that because the brain, the Tyrannosaurus, overpowers us. Now, I was first exposed to this by the, early on in my career by the father of cognitive psychology, Albert Ellis. He was asked what percent of the world's population sometimes engage in these counterproductive, self-defeating behaviors, and he said approximately 100%. And then Chris Argyris was an organizational researcher at Harvard Business School. He interviewed 10,000 people, very smart people, high levels in organizations like us, and he found that when learning is needed the most, when there's complexity and stress, people would act counter to that by ways like Dr. Baker. They would get strong convictions, push their ideas, close off exploration of ideas, judge others. And what he said was, put simply, people consistently act inconsistently, unaware of the contradiction between the way they think they are acting 
and the way they really act. Now, one of the tools that is online for you is entitled Ladder of Inference. It's going to go into this deeper. I just wanted to mention it briefly. One of the ways to deal with this reptilian brain is when, it seems so simple, but it's powerful, is to notice and label reactivity when it's occurring. So I'll be sitting in a meeting and I'll notice my brain saying, you got, this is the right answer, that person's wrong. And I know, okay, I need to set that aside. When nanoseconds, we leap from observed data to conclusions. So in this case, I have a lot of data about Jackie, but I select the data that she's quiet and didn't follow through with what I wanted. Judgment, she's passive-aggressive, and then I can't work with her. And Gervais Bush, in in his book, Clear Leadership, estimates that about 80% of conflicts in the workplace are because we get stuck up the ladder with judgments and assumptions that are not checked out by mutual exploration of what data we're basing them on. And in about 20 minutes, usually, by checking out the data we're basing those conclusions on, either the conflict goes away or it's entirely different. So it's actually a smaller percentage of conflicts that actually need some more advanced conflict resolution techniques. Now, let's use this picture again to see what's happening in the story. Dr. Baker gets fired up. He gets Jackie going. Now, Jackie withdraws into silence, and that scares her improvement consultants because remember, people are getting laid off, and they get all uptight, and they start pushing the measurement group for results. And the measurement group gets uptight, and then the physician champion of secondary prevention comes in. He's well-known to the organization. He says, I need some data, and the measurement group says, we have no time to get you that. And the physician championship says, see, this organization doesn't care about quality, and then you got this. In your nice improvement effort, you got this going on. Now, this is happening in all of your organizations right now. You cannot avoid it. It is inevitable. But what we can do is decrease the frequency, duration, and intensity of this. And we can really work to make our environment so this is uh, much less often and frequent. Now we'll take one minute again. And what I'd like you to do is, again, talk to each other about what you heard Also, as we work through the framework, if a situation comes to mind you're currently dealing with, think of that, and also answer this question. I am currently facing a situation in which I see reactivity in myself and or others. Improving this situation would make a significant impact on my work life. Yes, no, or uncertain. Okay, please take one minute right now. Okay, we'll be coming back in just about five seconds. Okay, sorry to interrupt you, but if you could come back, please. Okay, let's just see how many of you are currently facing a situation in which, and it's dark so nobody can see you, uh, which you have reactivity and it's having a significant impact on your work life. 
Okay, it's hard for me to tell the percentage here, but in the 450 people who attended this in other forums, 94% said yes. Now, do you think that has something to do with the fact that with the same improvement in safety technologies, there's variation of results within and across settings? Now, let's, now we're going to start working on the framework for how you deal with this. And I just want to say this framework I call non-denominational. You don't have to pledge allegiance to it or the terminology. Uh, there's so many leadership concepts. You will integrate the ones that fit your own personal voice. But what I hope this promotes is a systematic approach to reflecting about uh, relational issues. And then I hope many of these ideas are helpful to you. And the first step is reflection. Because remember, we have to recognize the reactivity going on and help ourselves get out of a reactive state. And one of the things you have a question about, if I was so good relationally, why was I in such a reactive state? And I think it speaks to the level of personal and situational stress that was going on. The other thing is, remember, I had come out of a team I'd been with for 10 years to a team nobody knew me. And I came out of a situation where there was constant checks and balances and feedback. We were pretty open about, with each other about when we were getting out of sorts. So this was a setup for that to uh, come out. And the key is to recognize when we're in uh, the, uh, some distressed, reactive state, barely hanging on, victimized, frustrated, angry. The trick for me is that when I'm in a reactive state, I'm totally confident. I know the right answer, but the clues are is that, that I know the right answer and that I'm impatient with people and I'm pushing it, I don't listen to other people, so those are my clues. And the object is to get out of that state of on what's called the balcony. This comes from Heifetz and all the practice of adaptive leadership. And that's we're getting ourselves out of the emotional and psychological turmoil to look more objectively, although I'm never as calm as that guy when I'm on the balcony. And you also have a tool online that goes through some questions that guide you through this, but I'm going to touch on a few now. In recognizing, it's what are my clues and triggers. I had worked for years to understand, watch my behavior over time and the results. To really, It took me quite a while to connect my certainty with a problematic behavior. So once I did, I had that going. It took years. I got better and better at catching that earlier takes practice. So what are my clues and triggers? Another key question is, how am I contributing to the problem? Because usually in reactivity, we're blaming somebody else, and there's a 100% possibility we're participating in the problem. Because look, if I approach Jackie as if she's the problem, who wants to be fixed? Nobody wants to be fixed if they're a problem. The next thing is to orient to our vision for the results we're trying to achieve and the relationships we wanted. When my colleague confronted me about my behavior, although I really wanted to my plan to be adopted by Jack in the organization, I also could see I was hurting the relationship. What he brought back to me is I also have to, along with any kind of goal, be, have that mesh with the relationships we're trying to build. If those things aren't simultaneously guiding us, we're at risk for having more problems. And that is a demanding practice, but that's what happened. So when I went into Jackie, I, told, I was basically saying to her, you know, I'm going to let that go because we have to have mutual understanding and goals. And so what happens is it's very seductive to stay in a problem orientation, treat people and things as problems. But if we do so, we become a tactical leader, 
transactionally, not much is going to really transform. But when we orient to our vision, we're saying, here's what I want to achieve, and we're inviting people to participate in an open and honest conversation. And then we prepare for a dialogue in which we are um, going to be not only hold on to our opinions, we're not going to let them go, uh, but we're also going to be ready ourselves to be curious about what other people said or thinking is part a big part of emotional intelligence is what Maureen said. It's that curiosity quotient. I also have several mantras I've learned over time that I repeat to myself in stressful situations. Everybody acts at their worst at times, including me. That makes me leavens my judgment of Jackie, and it reminds me like, well, if I think she's passive aggressive, what is she calling me? Uh, my first impulse is to like, likely to make me part of the problem. My strongest conviction is just a theory to be tested. That's the big one for me, is to really remember that the bait bubble diagram where, you know, I'm just only one part of the information. And results come first, but only if relationships come first. Now I'd like to, you to take one minute and just talk with somebody next to you, talk about whatever you need to, but consider if you chose a situation, how might I and they be in reactivity? And what are my and their clues and triggers. So take one minute starting now. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have about 10 seconds. And I hope this gets conversation started. You can continue later. So if you could come back, please. Thank you. Uh, now what we've done is we've reflected on the problem. We're ready to get into conversation. And we're going to look at dialogue. And dialogue is my term for open and honest conversations which actually elicit differences and view them together as opposed to debating and exploring them together. Now, um, they, all you have to do is remember one key maneuver, and that is to set aside decision-making in the rush to solutions and focus just on that process. And that is extremely demanding to do because our reptilian brain, uh, the uh, pressure to get to results, and also just the way leadership has been set up in Western society, like we drive to results, everything makes us impatient and push to solutions. It's just so automatic. So it's very hard to slow down and, uh, and really explore. The other thing that makes it hard is that when you get out differing viewpoints, during the very time when you want to rush to solutions, you're complexifying the situation. Sam Keener, in his book on facilitation, calls this the groan zone, when we're uh, getting out multiple different viewpoints. So it's not easy. It doesn't necessarily feel good until you've practiced it a bunch of times. 
So um, the Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, says, if you know you are not sure, you have a chance to improve a situation. Because improvement's going to come when you've got multiple viewpoints in a complex system. Now, you also have a tool online that give, dives into some pointers with each of these parts, components of dialogue. So I'm just going to cover them briefly now. What I did with Jackie initially is I really emphasized active listening. And when you're in a difficult interaction, and my impulse, Dr. Baker's impulse, remember, at the time was to push his point of view. This is what makes dialogue so hard. At the very time the stakes feel high and our reptilian brain is pushing us, it's time to let go of that to listen to somebody else. And active listening is where we listen in a way that the speaker feels heard. We're letting go of all of our thoughts and agenda, and we're even helping to champion their point of view, which can be very difficult if we disagree with it, because getting out their best point of view is going to put them in a position to participate as fully as we want. So I spent the first several weeks doing mostly active listening with Jackie, and gradually I was able to get into active telling, where I tell my point of view in a way that does minimizes any provocation of defensiveness, debating, or withdrawal. And um, a key point here is that all this engagement, intrinsic motivation, listening to others, we cannot abandon our point of view. If we abandon our point of view, we risk becoming victims and getting into worse reactivity, and we lose our contribution, which is very important to the definition of the problem solutions. And the handout I gave you online has some pointers with it. A very simple one is converting the making statements as if they're the truth to I and my statements. This is my perception. This is my belief. And all the time while I'm telling Jackie that I'm remembering my, my strongest convictions are just a theory to be tested. I need to hear what Jackie has to say. Because if people don't express their concerns, they're much like, less likely to get on board. So I'm coaching myself as I'm saying those things. A couple of other pointers. We can start dialogue by stating our intentions, being very clear about what our intention is. With Jackie, I said, look, I want to set aside decision-making and make sure we really understand where we're coming from because I really want to assure mutual understanding and mutual goals. I know it seems like I just want to win, but it's not going to work unless we're together. So stating intentions very clearly. And the handout you have, the tool, has some other ideas about that. Also, checking understanding. This is so simple, and it's so important, and it's so awkward to do. This is the same as teach-back that we do with patients. So when somebody talks, what are your ideas and perceptions? Here's what I heard you say. Did I get that right? Uh, What observations are you basing that on? So we're starting to practice walking down the ladder from, oh, you got that opinion? What were you looking at to get that opinion? Now, you can start practicing your active listening skills tomorrow. Take a five-minute test. Stop somebody in the hallway and say, how are you doing? Listen to them and say, did I get that right? Here's what I heard. Or ask them any sort of question. So you can practice your active listening. It may take people for a while to be honest with you about whether you actually heard them or not. And it does take practice to get our own thoughts out of the process, our own, because it's so compelling to try to put in our own ideas. Uh, When we talk to other people, we ask permission. Have you ever heard of ask, tell, ask in motivational interviewing? 
Asking permission is a powerful, respectful move. I've never heard anybody refuse. And asking for teachback. What did you hear me say? Do you mind telling me what you heard so I know we're on the same page? Do you understand what I'm basing this on? Asking them. So instead of Dr. Baker closing off exploration, I'm opening up questionings. And I'm saying, what, did I, what am I missing? Where might I be wrong? This is very difficult to do when we feel strongly about something. But, it, but if people can't express their concerns openly, they're much less likely to get to intrinsic motivation. That's going to go underground and suck the energy out of things. So another factor here is dealing with power differentials. Power differentials powerfully activate the reptilian brain. They dramatically lower the threshold for that Tyrannosaurus rex charging through. And um, one type of power differential that was going on between Jackie and I was doctors tend to have this aura of power in the system. And um, the other type of power differential is important is if you have hiring and firing authority over people, that's in the room lowering the threshold for reactivity. What Dan Goleman says in Primal Leadership, he's the author of Emotional Intelligence, the slightest voice inflection, the most innocent remark, can land hard on those you have authority over, causing them to make up stories that support increased caution and distort further interaction. This happens in an instant. And there are psychological studies that show that regardless of your personality and and your values, if you have more power, you are much more likely to talk more, listen less, and have trouble getting in people's shoes. If you have less power in a situation, regardless of your personality, you're much more likely to withdraw into silence, be afraid, or attack, neither of which are helpful in gaining a mutual understanding and approach. So with Jackie, knowing that physician-ness is in the room with me, I had to bend over backwards to make sure I was listening. Very important to emphasize that. And she needed to bend over backwards to summon forth the courage to say what she thought. So I'd like you to take one minute now, and with your situation, consider, are you taking enough time for dialogue? Here's a a conversation I have with some executive coaching clients that is not atypical. They're having a problem with somebody, and I say, well, how often do you meet with that person? And they say, well, weekly. What's the situation? Well, it's a group meeting with 15 people. Uh, Do you ever meet individually? Yeah, I did, but it didn't work. How long did you meet with that person? 15 minutes. So this takes time and repetition. Remember, it took me three months to recover a reasonable, good working relationship with Jackie. Uh, What will you emphasize in your next conversation? Will be active listening, like I did with Jackie, active telling, checking understanding. So consider these things or any other things you need to talk about in your one minute. So please go ahead and start right now. I'll let you know when a minute is up.
Okay, we have 10 seconds. Again, sorry to interrupt, but I hope this helps jumpstart further conversations when you leave here. Now, this part of the framework, I think, is the core part. It enables you to get into action in your next conversation. And think of it like a PDSA cycle, a small test of change. Do something you feel confident in. If you're having a problem with a team or, or an individual, start out with active listening. Just, you know, take a smart time. I, you know, I just want to step back and I'm going to check your point of view again. So you can get into action. The point is to stay in motion trying these things out because it takes time and repetition. The next two part of the frame, parts of the framework are just as important but are not as necessary to getting into motion. But it is important to know about them because they also impact the reptilian brain if there are problems in them. One is, is that decision-making needs to be clear. It needs to be clear who has the authority and how decisions are made, and the decision-making process needs to be sensible and of high quality. And if that isn't there, you're much more likely uh, to get problems in the interaction that are not due to the skills there or the personalities or individuals. So, for example, with Jackie and I, I used a very bad, poor quality process of getting consensus. Jackie and I did not have authority over each other. We had to come to consensus and then influence other people to get anything done. So here's poor quality consensus when I said, uh, and we need to use quality consultant time, right, Jackie? She said nothing. There's an agreement, right? Well, there wasn't. Um, now, how many times have you heard that in group meetings where somebody says, this is it, right? And there are a few nodding of the heads, other people are silent, and you go off, and what you get is poor motivation, the same kind of messed up results that I got with Jackie. It was an embarrassment because then the quality consultants know that Jackie and I are not on the same page. It doesn't work out very well. High quality consensus is defined by people can live with the decision, not necessarily it's its first choice, and commit fully to its implementation. And each person needs to indicate that in a high-quality consensus. And that really depends on high-quality dialogue. So um, that's what would have been better with... Uh, uh, so I, I did a very, very poor process. When Jackie and I came to that pro the secondary prevention initiative, we had gone over and over it. She wasn't happy with some parts. I wasn't happy with some parts. But we said, this is it. And uh, we both were behind it, and the physician champions got behind it, and that started driving things. So, here, so is it clear who ha So in your situation, is it clear who has authority? Is it clear how the decision will be made? It may not be clear, but if it's not clear and if it isn't a high-quality process, just be aware that could easily raise the risk for reactivity in the room and that it's going to be harder. And that difficulty should not be... It, it, it's, when you remember that, it's less likely you'll personalize that as something wrong with you or the other person. That's where reactivity gets going as we interpret a problem as our fault or their fault when it's really in the system, has a poorly designed decision-making process. The next piece is follow-up and alignment. Now, one of the problems we have in healthcare, uh, let me put it this way, it's a challenge. 
it's inherent in the system, so I won't call it a problem. I, I just spent the whole hour telling you not to call people things problems. That uh, we have multiple silos of authority going down to the front lines. Uh, so I, I've seen outpatient systems with it, which as many as nine different silos of authority. And it's so hard to keep all those people on the same page with the same priorities and responding in the same way. Now, Jackie and I were caught up in that because one of the things we discovered is the chief medical officer had told me to focus on quality. The chief operating officer to whom Jackie reported told her not to. And that didn't become apparent until a couple months after we started repairing things. It seemed like an obvious thing that we had missed. And that would have leavened, softened some of the differences between us. And if we remember, so what's, if remember, this is going on all the time, the, the, and the thing that diminishes this is ongoing meetings, individual and group meetings that have protect time for high quality dialogue to check in, to see if we are on the same page. And if we're complaining about meetings, that is an, as I think, that's as important an indicator of an issue we need to address as some safety problem. In fact, I suspect that it contributes to safety problems. So a follow-up alignment question is, are there regular meetings in which alignment is assessed? And again, I come across periodically some astonishing things that are just human, actually. A medical director I was coaching had, was having trouble with his boss, a more senior medical officer, they had not had an individual meeting in eight years. And things like this happen. So I ask silly questions all the time, like, well, how often do you have meetings? And do you ever protect time just to check out what's going on? Now, I've been through the framework, and I've told you one story in which there was three months of reactivity. But I'm going to give you very short stories just to give some snapshots of some other uh, uh, that. The, I think they'll deepen some of the understanding of the framework and the issues. So this is a story of one of my first management positions where I took over a behavioral health service in a large integrated system, which was uh, one of the most dysfunctional teams I'd ever seen. Blaming, shaming, awful environment, and uh, poor staff morale, bad finances, bad access, lots of patient complaints. In two years, we turned things around. High staff morale, Finance is good, low patient complaints, good access. And it was one of the key indicators was over and over and over dealing with reactivity and getting back into dialogue. Wait, uh, we had said we were going to really listen to each other. Are we doing that now? Hey, wait, are we blaming each other? It's constant course correction with dialogue. But a key thing that I learned during this time was an approach decision making to decision making called consultative. Remember, one of the problems we have is that we're after intrinsic motivation, but we can't make decisions where everybody's happy or immediately motivated. And I couldn't use consensus decision-making in this environment because there was very poor dialogue. I really couldn't trust the quality of dialogue in the room. So consultative decision-making is simply where I hold on to the decision, but I get a lot of input. And if you do that, you really have, once you make the decision, you really have to say what you're doing with the input. But here's the way you tell people about a decision and preserve the highest chances for developing intrinsic motivation among people who may not be uh, happy with the decision over time. 
So that's what we're doing. Even though this is not, our environments are not perfect, we're constantly working on the ways to enhance the chances for intrinsic motivation. So I use, I would announce a consultative decision through dialogue. First, the driver of the decision is the vision, not power. It's not, I, we're doing this because I said so, which activates the reptilian brain like crazy. It's, you know, I had to make the call. We're after patient, the best patient-centered care. And I know this is going to make some of you unhappy or some of you are really worried about it. But I just had to make the call. This is the way forward. So I'm acknowledging risks and downsides. And I invite people involved in implementation. We can, let's look at some of these problems and problem solve. And it's eliciting concerns and reactions. Even negative ones, which is the last thing we want to do when we make a hard decision is listen to negative reactions. But that is the way forward because, again, it goes underground. It sucks energy out of the system. And people are more likely to have a chance of coming to intrinsic motivation if they can talk about it. Not stay stuck in it. That's a different problem, but, but at least be able to talk about it and engage in problem solving. This next story I, I want to say is, is from Virginia Mason. I did get to talk to Gary Kaplan, the CEO of Virginia Mason, about this and got his validation and permission to use this. He's also, you also saw him this morning, as the chair of the board of IHI. And um, this helped, is going to help illustrate some issues with physician culture related to this. Uh, Gary, Virginia Mason is internationally known for its work in quality and safety, and I was on a call with improvement advisors about their lean methodology. Appropriately enough, because it was about lean, 19 of the slides were about lean, but one was on the process of conversations they had to engage physicians. And I asked him a question. I said, Gary, could you tell me about the importance of those physician conversations and the sequencing of it related to lean? And he said, I'm glad you asked me to that. We spent 15 months on these physician conversations before we ever touched lean, and we're still working on it. And the way he sees it is a physician culture is moving from physicians, we get trained in a very autonomous culture where we are the arbiters of quality. Uh, in that sort of environment, we can opt in and opt out of standards. We have the choice and we're trying to move to an interdependent environment where we're actually letting go of our ability to opt out of something for the sake of an interdependent team, which is ironically the only way you can get quality. But moving from one to the other entails fear and loss. And what Gary said is resistance is not about resistance to change, but fear of the loss. And if people don't voice their concerns and we don't work with them, then people uh, then you're going to have problems with either the amount of innovation or sustainability. And uh, so to look at this the framework here, what Gary has done is he's made a decision about the type of culture we're headed towards, but how we're implementing it and, and what that, how that impacts. He had a long dialogic process with people, open and on honest conversations to get there. Now, I've also talked to a colleague of mine, Jack Silverson, who's a consultant for this, and he said that um, it's not that physicians are more important, but they do ha are in a very important place in the system, and we have to deal with that. And everybody has to be involved, because equal to the physician autonomy is a problem where it, sometimes administrators cut physician leaders out of being meaningfully part of decision-making, and that's equally problematic. The other thing Gary said is that uh, they have a Virginia Mason Institute, which helps organizations with transformations, 
They will only work with organizations that are willing to conduct these deep dialogic conversations in order to support transformation. So I talked to you about a problem that took three months with Jackie and I, uh, that problem with the difficult team where I used cons- consultative decision-making took two years. Uh, this took 15 months to get off the ground. They're still working on it. Now I'm going to tell you about magic. One conversation, least expected, cures the situation. I, the first time I gave this talk three years ago, I got an email from the physician lead of a very large regional patient safety initiative, and he had come to that. He was chairing a very critical committee, which was stuck in the mud. It was going nowhere. And he had come to the talk blaming a particularly prominent surgeon who was just pushing his weight around, and he had labeled this, the, this surgeon as narcissistic. During the talk, in one of these one-minute things, he goes, oh, my God, I'm reacting. I, I'm labeling him. And uh, I'd been argumentative, too. So he went back, and in the first committee meeting, he said, you know, we're not getting anywhere, and I'm really worried about that. And I want to apologize, because I've participated in that in my argumentativeness. And what I think we really need to do is set aside decision-making and really listen to each other's points of view and make sure we understand, even if we disagree. And I talked to him two years after that. The committee rarely fell into argumentativeness. And he and the surgeon were colleagues and friends. Now, if you had looked at them just in that cross-sectional period where they had problems, you might have said that physician leader needs intensive leadership training, and the surgeon, well, I don't know, we need to do something about his personality, neither of which were the case. Again, this is hard work. It takes courage and determination most of the time. It can take three months. It can take two years. It can take longer but sometimes you do get this kind of magic where you least expect it. And I don't think that how badly we feel in a situation correlates with how hard it is to change. Now, I have to tell you, sometimes things don't work out at all. But even when things don't work out, if we use this framework or similar concepts, we give it a chance to work, not work out better. (laughs) And this comes from a, a, a vice president of quality I was working with who was in an environment that was very high-pressured, highly politically charged, lots of judgment and behind-the-scenes maneuvering, like he wouldn't get invited to critical meetings he wouldn't know about, so very intense and difficult. And here's what he said. I feel I have to put on a suit of armor on every day and get ready for all this negative energy. It takes a lot of emotional energy not to take it personally and to take the high road. Yet parts of the work go well, and I love it, and I really care about it, but it is hard to see a way forward. So he started reflecting, using dialogue, and he would kind of push his ideas in meetings. He stopped doing that. People softened around him, liked talking to him. But eight months after opening this up, he decided to leave. And, but it was much healthier for him. He, did, he hadn't suffered as much. It was still difficult, because once you get out of the reactivity, there's less suffering. And he could see the extent of the problem was not something he wanted to deal with. It's not something to be taken lightly, leaving something. But it is much better to do it when we're not in a reactive state to make that sort of decision. And he used a method called being unconditionally constructive. Even if there's a lot of bad politics around, that we don't get drawn into it. It's very demanding. We stay with our values and with some framework that keeps us responding in a constructive way. 
Now, um, David White is a poet, and he works in organizations, and this is a paraphrase of a story of his when he was a nonprofit director of an executive of a, a of a uh, organization, a nonprofit organization, he came in to a friend of his, brother David Stendhal Rast, and says, I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out, this is so hard, what do you do? And he said, the antidote to exhaustion or change fatigue is not rest, it is wholeheartedness, the courage that comes from heart, that has to do with coming out of hiding and have a conversation with others with life. None of the changes will happen without the conversation." So this is all about having open and honest conversations with life in it, with caring that we can hold together even if we disagree. And I wish you all the best of luck with that, and I hope these ideas help. We hope you enjoy this WIHI special edition podcast, Personal Mastery for Transformational Leadership, featuring Neil Baker, and recorded live at IHI's National Forum on December 8, 2015. A reminder that related materials, including Dr. Baker's presentation slides, can be found on IHI's website. Look on the homepage of IHI.org for a link to this WIHI program, where you'll find additional links to all archived shows. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thank you for listening.